Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There are cases we have all heard of. Madeleine McCann, William Tyrrell, Lisa Irwin, Kyron Holman. I could go on. But what about those missing children who you have never heard about? They are just a short blurb on page four and you never hear about them again. The children you will learn about in the next two episodes are all part of minority groups and have just enough strange, intriguing details that have you wanting to go down that rabbit hole. But you won't be able to. There is no long-form article in your favourite news outlet. And the podcast that you love? There is no episode. This episode of Mysteriously Listed. Little Known Missing Children's Cases. Number 14, Olisa Williams. Denise Fraser was infatuated with her neighbour, Isaiah Williams, who was 10 years her senior. The two had a short courtship before marrying only a few months into their relationship. Denise would later report these early days were like a fairy tale and very romantic, but this soon changed. Multiple reports of domestic abuse would come into the police. One incident had Isaiah allegedly shooting at and beating Denise with a rifle. Isaiah would spend time in prison for a range of violent crimes. It was during one sentence for armed robbery that Denise would fall pregnant to another man. This did not deter Isaiah, though, and he vowed to be a father to this child, regardless of her parentage. He would be listed on the birth certificate as the father of Olisa Williams. The relationship would soon come to a violent end, and Denise and baby Olisa would move into a woman's refuge in late 1981. In May of the next year, Denise would contact authorities again in a panic. She would report that Isaiah had barged into her apartment, knocking her down and taking 17-month-old Elisa, telling her she would never see her daughter again. Police would dismiss this as a custody issue and would not get involved. It became one case on a long list for children's services to investigate. On February 3rd, 1983, Isaiah Williams fronted court on restraining order violations. Strangely, he would announce he would tell the judge what happened to his daughter if the charges would be dismissed. To this, the judge refused and threatened him with extra jail time. Regardless, this was enough for the police to become involved with the missing child case 
and Isaiah would tell them his version of events. Isaiah claimed the last time he saw his daughter was eight months prior, that he had been drinking alcohol and smoking marijuana while driving around Ann Arbor, Michigan with Olisa. He stopped at Island Park, got out of the car, and at some point fell asleep on a park bench. When he woke up, the car door was open and Olisa was gone. He told police this did not concern him, though, that he believed Denise or another relative had taken the child while he was sleeping and she was fine. Another ex-wife would tell another story. She claimed she last saw Elisa on July 10th, between 2 and 3 a.m., when he left with the baby in the car. He would return eight hours later without her, and he refused to tell the ex-wife where she was. Isaiah simply loaded Olisa's belongings in the car and drove his ex-wife to work. This would be the last confirmed sighting of Olisa, and she was never seen again. Over the years, Isaiah would call Denise and taunt her with possible outcomes of what happened to her daughter. He claimed he lost Olisa that he killed her, that she was sick and had died in hospital, or that she had drowned. Due to this last admission, police did search the Huron River, but no sign of Elisa was found. The investigation into Elisa's disappearance was hampered from the start, due to the delay in actually investigating the case, and the changing story from Isaiah. He would claim that a car accident in 1994 wiped all memory of the early 1980s, and he could no longer remember his daughter and what happened to her. The county prosecutor first tried to bring an abandonment charge and then a murder charge against him, but both charges were dropped due to lack of hard evidence. Police believe that Isaiah either murdered Olisa or gave her to someone else to raise. In 2010, police interviewed a white couple with a black adopted daughter, born around the same time as Olisa, but nothing came of this line of investigation. Both Isaiah and Denise still live in Ann Arbor, and Denise has since remarried. She hopes her daughter is still alive and the two will one day be reunited. At the time of her disappearance, Olisa Williams was 17 months old, two feet tall and around 45 pounds. She was African-American with brown hair and brown eyes. If Olisa is still alive today, she would be 38 years old. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Number 13. Chris Cunningham Lisa Cunningham had a rough start to life, leading her to battle with depression and suicidal thoughts. By 1987, she had seemed to be on top of her mental health and doing well. She was working as a dental assistant and had a loving relationship with her boyfriend, who she lived in an apartment with in Chino, California. On July 9th, 1987, Lisa took her six-year-old son Chris out for a day of adventure. First, they went to visit her brother, and then they went shopping with a friend before dropping that friend off at home. She told her friend the two were going to the Slater Brothers Market to pick up some groceries to cook a surprise dinner for her boyfriend. Lisa's boyfriend was expecting her and Chris to be home between 6 and 7pm, but they never arrived, and they were never seen again. Two months later, on September 9, 1987, Lisa's 1987 Toyota Tercel with temporary licence plates was found abandoned in downtown San Diego. The car stereo and speakers were missing. Police were unable to find any fingerprints on the car and there was no signs of a struggle. Lisa did not pick up her last paycheck and never accessed her bank account after she was last seen. Due to this, investigators do not believe she left with Chris on her own free will. Police theorise that foul play was involved in their disappearances. At the time of his disappearance, Chris Cunningham was 4 foot 2 and 90 pounds. He was African American with black hair and brown eyes. He was lovingly known by his nickname, Boo Boo. He had a raised spotted birthmark on his right wrist. If Chris was still alive today, he would be 39 years old. Number 12. Jeremiah Huger and Aquila Hodrick. June 25, 1985. Four-year-old Jeremiah Huger was playing with friends in his family's yard in the Bronx neighbourhood of New York City, New York. The other children would later report to the police that an African-American man called out to Jeremiah by his name from the street. Jeremiah ran out to greet this man when he grabbed the toddler and drove away. Neither of them have ever been seen again. Only six weeks later, only miles from where Jeremiah was taken, 
another child went missing from the same neighbourhood. At around 6.30am, August 12, 1985, eight-year-old Aquila Hodrick and her mother T. Rona sat on their porch people-watching. Neighbours walking past stopped and chatted with the pair. Aquila heard an ice cream truck and ran down the street and around the corner. Because Tirona was eight months pregnant at the time, she couldn't chase after her. Besides, she knew Aquila was mature for her age, knew not to talk to strangers, and knew her phone number and address by heart. Tirona reasonably assumed that her daughter would come back as soon as she got an ice cream. That never happened, and Aquila was never seen alive again. One of Aquila's cousins would later tell Tirona that she saw Aquila playing at a nearby video arcade later that night. However, this was 1985 and before the time of CCTV footage, so this sighting could never be confirmed. Bloodhounds would pick up Aquila's scent and track it a mile away from her home near some railway tracks. No sign of her could be found there. Despite the close vicinity of both the abductions, no connections between Aquila's and Jeremiah's case has been made. And unfortunately, these were just two of the many child abductions that occurred in the Bronx during this time frame. Were they the victims of child trafficking or completely unrelated? Police do believe Jeremiah may have been sold after his abduction. Jeremiah's mother believes he was taken by an abusive and jealous ex-boyfriend of hers, who had previously threatened to abduct Jeremiah. And the evidence shows this is possible. The fact the person who took Jeremiah knew him by name and children that young tend to shy away from those they don't know. Sadly, Jeremiah's parents both become addicted to drugs after his disappearance, as they struggled to cope without knowing what happened to their son. His mother has since entered recovery, and is still searching for her beloved Jeremiah. At the time of his disappearance, Jeremiah Huger was between three foot six and three foot seven and around forty five pounds. He was African American with brown hair and brown eyes. Jeremiah had a scar on his left forearm and his left leg was bow legged. He was last seen wearing a light blue shirt, dark blue shorts, and white sneakers. If Jeremiah was still alive today, He would be 39 years old. At the time of her disappearance, Aquila Hodrick was 4 foot 11 and 80 pounds. She was African American with brown hair and hazel eyes. She wore prescription eyeglasses and had a scar near her right eye. Aquila had a gap between her upper front teeth. She was last seen wearing cut-off blue jeans, a white tank top with yellow and red marks. She was wearing light blue sneakers. If Aquila was still alive today, she would be 43 years old.
Number 11. Marble Arvidsson. By 2011, 17-year-old Marble Arvidsson was a child of the system. He was living in a foster home on the western edge of Brattleboro and was in the custody of the Vermont Department of Child and Family Services. The information about his time in foster care is vague. From my research, his mother Sigrid named him Marble for her love of marbles and thought that it sounded like a strong name. Sigrid and Marble moved to Massachusetts when he was only one year old. She was escaping an abusive relationship and suffering from alcoholism. At some point, he moved in with his great-grandparents before moving back with his mother in Vermont when he was five or six. When he was 14 years old, after fighting with his mother about cleaning his room, the fight turned violent. Marble took a splitting maul the outside of their home, smashing the porch and part of the home's foundation, causing about $3,000 in damages. It was this incident that was the catalyst of Marble ending up in the foster care system. At the time of Marble's disappearance, he was living with a mentor, a man in his 20s who was his legal guardian, along with another teenager and his mentor. Marble was about to start his senior year at Brattleboro Union High School and was considered quite a good student, getting a solid B average. He was even considering college options for the following year. On the afternoon of August 27, 2011, Marble pinned a note to the door of his bedroom for his girlfriend, saying he would return in 20 minutes. The note said he was going to a gremlin board, which was his way of saying he was going to a party. He was last seen with a man who appeared to be the same age and shorter than Marble. After about an hour, Marble's girlfriend came looking for him, but he wasn't there. Only a few hours later, it started raining, and the next day, all of Vermont was being pummeled by Irene, which had already killed dozens of people in the Caribbean and along the east coast of the United States. Marble's foster parents would report him missing on the Sunday but the search for him and the media attention took second place to the devastation that was Irene. Nothing was missing from Marble's room except for the clothes he was wearing and hiking boots. He had self-harmed in the past, but was excited for the future and had a lot to look forward to. Marble was considering to be high-functioning special needs, but would be able to survive on his own. There was no leads in Marble's disappearance, despite that his aunt would later report that he was fighting with some men in the days before he disappeared. At the time of his disappearance, Marble Arvidson was six foot two and 165 pounds. He had shoulder-length blonde hair and blue eyes. He was last seen wearing a black button-down shirt, black pants black hiking boots and a black fedora. If Marble was still alive today, he would be.
26 years old. Number 10, Shannon Ketron. July 17, 1982, Anne Ketron was travelling from Buffalo to her home in Codrell, Oklahoma, with her seven-month-old son Shannon. When the pair were about four and a half miles out of town, Anne pulled over in her 1978 silver Pontiac onto a dirt road near Route 183 to get something out of the car. When she did this, a Caucasian man with a dark complexion, about 5 foot 10 and 175 pounds, pulled up alongside her in a late model green GMC truck. He asked Anne if she needed any help. She declined, but he then got out of his car and told her that she looked like his ex-wife. He then knocked her unconscious. When Anne woke up, a green duffel bag was missing from her car, and so was Shannon. Very little information is available about this case, unfortunately, and what is out there is very conflicting. Some media outlets report Shannon to be almost two years old when he went missing, when in reality he was only seven months old. The abduction date was also reported to be a whole month later than it actually was. Shannon's father, Dustin, is not considered a suspect in the abduction. At the time of his son's disappearance, Dustin was serving a 12-month sentence for burglary at the Lexington Assessment and Reception Centre. Interestingly, though, he somehow knew about Shannon's abduction, despite not being able to take and receive calls within the facility. Anne took a polygraph test, but these results have never been released publicly. At the time of his disappearance, Shannon Ketron was one and a half feet tall and 27 pounds. He had blonde hair and blue eyes. If Shannon is still alive today, he would be 38 years old. Number 9. Alan Briscoe and Christine Green 16-year-old Christine Green was close to her family. She was one of seven children but took the leadership role and was like a second mother. This only intensified when, in 1955, her mother became very ill and was bedridden, relying on Christine more than ever. A role she took very seriously and would always call home if she was going to be late from school. On April 23, 1955, Christine left home as usual at around 8am. She was headed to Bartram High School, but would not attend any classes that day or be seen by any of her friends at school. She has never been seen or heard from since. Rumours around the small town would theorise that Christine had fallen pregnant by a boy she had been seeing. His identity has never been released, and it's unknown from my research whether he was questioned regarding Christine's whereabouts. It's because of this alleged pregnancy, though, 
It is theorised that Christine may have run away because she didn't want to disappoint her family. Her family are adamant, though, that this would never be the case, and she would never leave without contacting them. Almost eight months later, on December 13th, Joanne Briscoe would call home to check on her teenage children. It was 7.30am and she wanted to make sure that 17-year-old Latanya and 16-year-old Alan were awake and ready to go to Bartram High School. This was something she did every day. But on this morning, there was no answer. School let out at 2.30, so she called home again at 3.30, but again there was no answer. Joanne went to her second job, worried about her children. When Joanne finally got home at 11.30pm, she found that Latanya had only just gotten home herself. She told her mother that Alan had the house keys, so when she didn't see him all day at school and when she had gotten home and Alan still wasn't there, she went to their grandparents' house for a while until her mother got home. Police believe Alan went to school that day and there were reports that school did close early. Joanne, however, disagrees and she believes that Alan never made it to school that day. Regardless, Alan and a friend did at least miss part of the school day and rode the subway bus before returning to their own neighbourhood via a bus. It was then they parted ways and Alan told his friend that he was going to meet a female whose identity has never been revealed. Joanne believes that another neighbourhood boy may know what happened to Alan. This boy once came to their home to see Alan, but she believed this boy was trouble and warned her son to stay away from him. Years later, a southwest Philadelphia woman contacted the police. She saw an age-enhanced composite of Alan, and she believed that it looked exactly like her boyfriend. This man told police that this was not the case, and he was not Alan Briscoe. From my research, it does not appear he was very cooperative with the investigation and refused to supply a birth certificate or any other identification. Joanne does not believe her son ran away, though. Alan left behind all of his belongings, including $50 he received for his 16th birthday just a week earlier. At the time of her disappearance... Christine Green was 5 foot and 90 pounds. She was African-American with black hair and brown eyes. She was last seen wearing a pink blouse, blue vest, jeans and black shoes. If Christine was still alive today, she would be 81 years old. At the time of his disappearance, Alan Briscoe was 5 foot 8 and 140 pounds. He was African-American with black hair and brown eyes. He was bow-legged and had a scar on his forehead. He loved rap music and basketball and was known by his loved ones to be a picky eater. If Alan was still alive today, he would be 80 years old. 
Number eight, Mark Allen. 13-year-old Mark Allen was known to be a mischievous child. He wasn't particularly naughty or bad. He would just get himself into trouble. He was highly intelligent and a great student. He was well-liked by his classmates and teachers. In trying to work out the best environment to raise this boisterous teen, he had been shifted back and forth between his father's Minnesota home and his mother's home in Des Moines, Iowa. And this is where he was for Easter 1986. On March 29th, Mark told his mother Nancy that he was going to his friend's home to play video games and maybe watch a movie. To save him some pizza because he was going to be hungry when he got home. Nancy watched her eldest child walk down the driveway and turn a corner, smiling and waving back at her. Mark would never arrive at his friend's home and would never be seen again. The next morning, Nancy realised Mark hadn't come home. Being Easter Sunday, she thought he may have left early to go to his grandparents' home for Easter eggs. She called her and then all of his friends, but no one had seen the teen. Nancy contacted the police for help, but she was told she could not follow a missing persons report for 48 hours. Police initially theorised that Mark had run away, but over time they would reclassify his disappearance as a likely non-family abduction. Mark was initially thought to be the third Iowa paperboy to go missing in the 1980s. The highly publicised cases of 12-year-old Johnny Gosh, who went missing on September 5, 1982, and 13-year-old Eugene Martin, who went missing two years later on August 12, 1984, they were initially linked to Mark's disappearance. All three went missing under very similar circumstances. But both Johnny and Eugene's cases did seem to receive far more publicity than Mark's. Possibly because Mark was seen to be a troublemaker, and due to police considering him to be a runaway. I'm not sure, and this is purely speculation on my part, though. Mark would later be determined not to be a paperboy, and police do not believe their cases to be linked. At the time of his disappearance, Mark Allen was 5 foot and 85 pounds. He had brown hair and blue eyes, with a small scar on the top of his head. He was last seen wearing a light blue shirt, blue jean shorts and grey tennis shoes with Velcro tabs. If Mark was still alive today, he would be 47 years old. Do you have something you would like to see mysteriously listed? Do you have a particular theme that interests you? Message us on Facebook at Mysteriously Listed and on Twitter at Mysterious List. If you like what you have heard today, we would love for you to share this episode on your social media of choice. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, 
We would appreciate it if you could leave a positive review and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Research, additional writing and hosting is by me, Ali. Music is by Mayu. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.